and welcome to How Free Is Your State? Sounds like a game show, kind of a little bit. I mean, it's not a game show, though. This is a Cato Institute book forum on the seventh edition of Freedom in the 50 States. We are lucky to have the authors of this edition with us here to share their meticulous and thorough research on freedom, as you will see very soon. Um, I'm your moderator, Eric Smith, uh, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I am joined by Jason Sorens, who is a senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We are also joined by William Ruger, president of the American Institute for Ec Economic Research and a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Before we get started, I want to remind people that online anyway. If you have questions, please use hashtag Free State, capital F and capital S, um, for YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, or what the kids are calling it nowadays, X. Um, let's get started. I had this book on my to-do list for a while. I recently got to take it off, not because I read it, but because the seventh edition came out, and now my edition is obsolete. Right? But, I mean, whatever it takes to get it off the list, I, I suppose. I am lucky, and you are lucky, to have these two authors here to, well, converse with me. You can live vicariously through me, or you can ask questions in the audience, online, what have you. Please make the best of that opportunity. Um, first, I want to turn it over to the authors and... Uh, let them tell us more about the book in general. Sure. Um, the Freedom Index, again, the seventh edition, uh, is, we think, uh, and I think it bears out given the extent of it, is the most comprehensive index of freedom out there. And, you know, we don't look at just economic freedom or look at personal freedom. We look at the whole range of, of different types of freedom. Uh, so we look at regulatory policy, fiscal policy, and personal freedom or freedom from paternalism. And the way we do that is we try uh, to be very careful, uh, right? We define our, uh, what we're talking about pretty care, uh, carefully. We, you know, freedom is the ability to use your life, liberty, and property as you see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others. Uh, so that's the kind of like general American sense of what it means to be free. And then we look at those state and local policies that either infringe on that freedom or support that freedom. And, you know, we have about 230 uh, top-line policy variables. Uh, and uh, then we, you know, uh, call balls and strikes. We look at, you know, what states uh, are doing well and which states are doing poorly. And, uh, again, we can get into a lot more about how we construct the index. Um, but uh, this is not working, by the way. I just wanted to let people know that. Um, All right. Uh, so I can – there we go. There we go. So, um, so the first thing, and I'll turn it over to Jason to kind of talk about some of the construction. But again, we look at, here's, here's fiscal policy, right? State taxation, government consumption, local taxation, government employment, government debt, cash and security assets. Then we look at regulatory policy. Here's the whole range of them. And then we look at personal freedom. So you can see that it covers a lot of different ground. Um, so, but you may notice that it, we say incarceration and arrest, 6.7%. Where did we get that from, right? Did this just spring out of our head and we said, hey, we think that that's worth, yeah, you know, roughly 6% of our freedom. No, of course we didn't do that. So I'm going to turn it over to my partner here, Jason Sorens, to tell us how we actually came up with those numbers. Yeah. Well, to keep, keep it very short and simple, um, one thing that's unique about this index is that we weight every policy variable, every input into the index according to the value of that freedom that we find in the literature. So we look at the published literature, mostly in economics, um, you know, what is, what is the value of the freedom to those people whose freedom is at stake? So we don't look at the, any potential side effects that might be positive for taking away freedom. We're just looking at the value of the freedom to the people whose freedom is at stake. And, um, and so we use that actually then to weight these variables. We also have a a constitutional weight if there's a policy that touches on something that's a, more of a fundamental right that's recognized in federal or state constitutions, then we give it a boost. Um, you know, one of the things that's, so we've got personal freedom up here. One of the things that was a little bit surprising to us uh, is, first of all, the gambling freedom is so high, 
um, because <laughs> we don't we don't personally do a lot of gambling, but Americans do. Americans gamble a whole heck of a lot. They spend a, a ton of money on gambling, and so some states don't allow gambling at all, and there are a handful that don't allow any form of legal gambling, and then many allow lots of legal gambling. So there's, there's really a wide range there, and so it ends up mattering a lot in our Freedom Index. Campaign finance, by contrast, matters very little, even though it touches on First Amendment freedoms, because Americans do not like giving money to politicians, it turns out. Really? Spend more on almonds than on elections. So <laughs> it's not a very valuable freedom to most Americans. And so we just kind of let that let the data speak in that sense. Yeah, and, and, and this is a way we can shield ourselves from just trying to measure freedom according to what, you know, Ruger and Sorens like. Right. You know, we're trying to have an objective way of measuring a normative concept. And this is in the tradition of a lot of social science. People study, you know, to what extent do we have democracy in various countries. Uh, people can study equality or equity. We're studying freedom, and we're excited to have a conversation about where freedom is doing better or worse. Um, but even if you disagreed with the idea that freedom matters or that it matters as much as we think it is, we think this can be helpful because it is a data-driven project. Excellent, excellent. By the way, I don't gamble either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I lost all my candy in a poker game in the fourth grade. <laughs> Haven't gambled since. Yeah, it's not a big thing for us. But there's no. a lot of things in the study that aren't big for us. Uh, you know, we, I don't drink raw milk, but we also code that. It's a very small percentage. Uh, but even things like uh, prostitution legalization, gambling, fireworks laws. Yeah. So yeah. again, uh, it's not what we think is right for people to do. We think right. it's what uh, what fits with our definition of freedom, what they ought right. to be able to do freely, uh, even if in some cases they might be better off not choosing to exercise that freedom. But, you know, uh, we want to kind of go through a little bit the different issue areas because people care not just about the overall freedom, um, but also the different areas. And here we see fiscal policy where our number one state for fiscal policy is Florida, followed by New Hampshire, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania. And Hawaii is the worst. Is the worst. And you can see over time what's going on here, right? You can see that fiscal policy for many, many years improved across the 50 states uh, with a recent dive over the last few years. Here's regulatory policy, where you can see that, unfortunately, regulatory freedom has fallen quite a bit. But Kansas has a real advantage here as the most, most free state when it comes to regulatory policy, followed by a, a whole bunch of other states that are in the middle of the country. And unfortunately for New Jersey, uh, which used to have more of an fr economic freedom advantage, which is why it drew a lot of people from New York, New Jersey comes in 50th. And here's our economic freedom scores combined, so when you can, or as the combined measure of fiscal and regulatory policy, where you see New Hampshire, Florida, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Georgia are the tops. And of course, New York is the worst. Um, and uh, not that I'm going to surprise anybody, but uh, New York is also the worst overall state. Uh, but maybe Jason wants to talk about personal freedom here. Yeah, I don't think there's a big surprise with Nevada at number one on personal freedom. What happens in Nevada stays in Nevada, apparently. Um, and Texas, for all its vaunted talk of, of freedom, is number 50 uh, on personal freedom. And what's interesting with personal freedom is that we see a very strong, long-run trend in favor of growing personal freedom. And this actually even excludes those policies where the Supreme Court has overturned state laws. So this is only policies that states control. So it doesn't even include things like sodomy laws and, and marriage laws and things like that. So uh, personal freedom has been rising uh, at the state level for uh, over a decade. And so again, uh, we don't do the drum roll and roll through them one by one like <laughs> we used to, but uh, you know, here's your overall uh, reveal, if you will, right? Um, you know, a, a few editions ago, Florida actually came in number one, uh, but New Hampshire has, has maintained its crown from the last edition. Uh, and in fact, it's, the, it's not only the, the number one free state in the country, but it actually has, uh, has the highest score absolutely that we've seen in the index since we started, uh, which shows that even though New Hampshire has been doing well for some time, the New Hampshire advantage, the live free or die state, but it's actually improved even relative to where it was. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, things like um, uh, a policy ideology that's friendly to freedom, uh, but also uh, maybe the on the margins, the Free State Project, which uh, Jason founded, I think has had an impact there. Uh, Florida obviously has been improving for many, many years, uh, as has Arizona. 
And so you see these top five, whereas the bottom five, New York is worst by far. It is not even close, although Hawaii has been gaining on it uh, in a negative sense, followed by California, New Jersey, and Oregon. Um, Jason, you want to take this one? Sure. You can see here that um, we took the the top five and bottom five to see how they've changed over time. And you can see that uh, New Hampshire was briefly number one uh, in 2000 and then uh, wasn't for a long time. And Nevada and South Dakota have taken turns at the top and Florida as well, I believe, one year. But um, uh, New Hampshire's regained the crown the last few years. Uh, and uh, in all these states, these top five states have gained a lot. In fact, Arizona and Florida have really gained tremendously, especially starting in about 2010, 2011. Uh, the bottom five states, most of them have, have kind of flatlined. They're not, they're not falling any further except for Oregon. You can see that they've dipped quite a bit uh, just recently. And uh, this is state average overall freedom uh, over time. Again, a, a pretty significant increase in the last 10 years. Um, some people uh, on, on Twitter get triggered by this, but <laughs> but this is just what the data have shown us is that the, that deep blue states tend to have less economic freedom. It's not necessarily that uh, becoming more and more Republican makes you uh, have more economic freedom because we see that purple states actually do do quite well here. Um, but it does seem that some of these states that are that are very very strongly democratic um, tend to have lower economic freedom, with a couple of exceptions like Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then personal freedom, uh, we see here a slight positive relationship between um, democratic partisanship and and higher personal freedom, but it's really very noisy. And here it's because democratic states have tend to have you know, more left-coded personal freedoms, like on marijuana, uh, criminal justice policies. Republican states tend to have more personal freedoms on the more right-coded policies, like education freedoms and gun rights. And so it kind of comes out in the wash. And, Will, do you want to talk about the consequences of freedom? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we care about freedom as an intrinsic good, but we also care about it for its consequences for our flourishing uh, and for our political economy here in, this, in the United States. And what this shows you is that there's a real important relationship, even when you control for lots of types of variables that cause people to move, right? Natural amenities, oceans, mountains, cost of living, uh, the climate. These are things that people move for, but they also move on the margins for freedom. And this shows that. And we have seen states that are less free, people are leaving them in droves, like New York. New York has had population declines, what, since 1957 in terms of migration? Uh, and, and especially, I think, in, over the last several years, has lost about 3.4% of its population. That's a lot of people. Uh, and they're not just fleeing to Connecticut or New Jersey, especially because New Jersey has lost some of its advantage in terms of its comparison to New York. But they're fleeing to places like Florida. And Jason and I were just doing a podcast, and we were talking about how it's not just older Americans moving to Florida older New Yorkers, it's also the Gen Z demographic that's moving. Uh, and they're moving in many ways to economic opportunity, which gets to the next issue, which is that, not that we should be surprised here at the Cato Institute, but Adam Smith's notion about how peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice can turn a, a community from barbarism to opulence. And we see here that, that economic freedom in particular is correlated with higher personal income growth. So not only are people voting with their feet for freedom, but places that are more economically free in particular are growing. Uh, and that helps them also attract new residents. But it's also better for their well-being, for their flourishing, because economic freedom is such an important aspect and economic growth is such an important aspect of a flourishing life more generally. Um, and so, again, we view freedom as a, as a whole, like Milton Friedman did. It's a totality. Uh, and that means both of these together are vitally important. Um, so, again, we could talk a lot about some of the details here, but we wanted to give you a general sense of what our study finds. And just to sum up, right, so, you know, we're, I think, the most comprehensive study of freedom uh, that's out there, looking at fiscal, regulatory, and personal freedom. Uh, and what we find uh, through a, a very objective social science um, uh, approach to weighting and measurement is we find that the states vary quite widely on freedom and that there are these significant results in terms of either attracting citizens or pushing them away 
and also increasing their economic growth uh, in those states that are more free. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we think that this is an important tool that legislators can use, uh, legislative staff. We've had a lot of people through the years that have wanted to have a look at this and see how they could do better. Uh, businesses and individuals who want to move and reveal their preference for freedom, uh, or at least to take advantage of a better economic climate. Um, and uh, also social scientists who have used this to try to measure all types of different things uh, and using freedom as a variable. And so, again, this is good for the everyman, uh, which is something at the American Institute for Economic Research that we care a lot about, is, is kind of bringing ideas and data uh, to people uh, that can use it in their own lives, but also important for scholars. Excellent. That was thorough. It was so thorough, I don't need this anymore. <laughs> all my questions. Um, I will ask you this, though. Um, you said something in the book about the fact that moral dignity is an underrated concept. Moral dignity is an underrated concept. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I'll let Jason take it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, um, I mean, one of the things that we talk about in, uh, in the beginning of the book um, is kind of an aside about... Uh, the good life, uh, what it means to flourish as an individual. And, you know, we believe that freedom is an important precondition for the good life. But that doesn't mean that the good life is merely being free to do whatever you want, right? We're not moral relativists outside of our defense of freedom, okay. right? We think that there are certain ways in which you live your life that are better than others. Um, and most importantly for political economy questions, that they actually buttress freedom and free markets. In other words, that there's a certain moral ecology that we believe is necessary for freedom uh, to prevail in the long run. And part of that is because when people live um, in a manner that is irresponsible, uh, that allows for policy entrepreneurs to use that as a wedge to drive for coercive policies under the guise of being well-intentioned. So we talked about gambling earlier, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if people are not, uh, and again, we're, if people are responsible with their gambling, it's not something I do because I know why those casinos make money because it's not in your favor. Yeah. But if you do that responsibly, right, no big deal in some senses. Um, but if you're irresponsible, and you know whether it's with uh, drugs, alcohol, gambling, or other types of things, um, and then you become destitute, then uh, policy entrepreneurs will try to either restrict the freedom to do those things for those of us who aren't irresponsible, or um, it'll lead them to say we need to take we need to take care of people who can't take care of themselves, and uh, and so I, we think that. Uh, what we call virtue libertarianism is, is, is important um, because we think that if people live a, a certain way, and again, we, we want to be careful about being humble about our ability to know exactly what that means, but it does mean something like, you know, think about the success ladder, mm. that if you, if, you, if you live that way and you're responsible, um, that you're more likely to, I think, uh, fend off the policy entrepreneurs that would like to, you know, restrict our freedoms or take care of us to death, right? Create kind of dependency. You want to add anything to that? Well, I, I, I took I, the I took uh, the landmine that he put out. <laughs> there. Yeah. I mean, the, the concept of the the dignity of the individual, I, I think, makes a difference in terms of how we weight these variables. So, um, there's this uh, political philosopher uh, who's since passed away, John Rawls, who's by no means a classical liberal or libertarian, but he uh, had this argument against utilitarianism. He said the way utilitarians would, would uh, analyze a policy like slavery is they would say, well, the, uh, the harms to the slaves outweigh or are larger than mathematically the benefits to the slave owners, and that's why slavery is wrong. And he said, well, isn't that the, kind of the wrong way to think about it? Shouldn't we just think of slavery as violating the inherent human dignity of the slaves? And the, the benefits that slavers get just don't count at all, morally speaking. And so that's the, the kind of the way that we were thinking about it when, uh, when we were weighting these policies. Well, the, the value of the freedom, um, just as freedom, is to the people who are enjoying it. Now, if you're a utilitarian, maybe you say, okay, but sometimes it's okay to override and take away freedom because the benefits are big enough. That's fine if you're being, I mean, I would disagree, but if you're being intellectually honest about it, that's the, the way to go. And so some people will insist, I think, when they see our, our freedom index, 
oh, uh, that's not real freedom. Real freedom is something else. Obviously, the, the states at the bottom are, are really the freest ones. I've seen people say this. And I, I think what they really mean is just um, there are things that are important other than freedom. And I, I'm okay with taking away freedom for these other things. Maybe it's equality or maybe it's, you know, um, something like that. And, and then, you know, maybe you think this, the states that we rank low actually have high maybe quality of life or high justice. But I think it's an abuse to say that they have high freedom because they, they definitely do t- take away more, more freedoms of the individual. Right. Yeah, and, and, and again, I, I mean, David Bowes, who's, who's been associated with the Cato Institute for decades, talks about this issue, which is that the kind of grounding of freedom is in a basic moral dignity of the individual. Yeah. And I think that means that when we, when we use coercion... And I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. So I think that there are times in which you know, state power can be justified. But we should be, think twice about it because when you use coercion, you are undermining someone's moral dignity uh, because we should allow people to make decisions. You know, rational people should be able to live their life project as they see fit. And we respect their moral dignity when we allow them to do that. And when we restrict people's freedom, uh, we're not respecting that moral dignity. Now, again, I, I think that states can violate people's moral dignity, um, but, but uh, individuals can also, and that's why I answered your question the way I did, individuals themselves can undermine or erode the respect for their, for, for their own moral dignity by behaving in ways, uh, in certain ways. So again, there's a kind of a two-step process. States can violate your moral dignity, but you as an individual can, can as well. Let's talk about one of those steps. Um, it seems to me, from what I'm hearing, that freedom is correlated with um, how little a state decides to be paternalistic, right? right. Um, the more paternalistic a state, the less freedom, yeah, right. generally. Is that a simple equation, or is it way off? No, that, I think that's right. I mean, this is how we classify some policies as personal freedom, and as Will mentioned, you know, really all of these are tied together, but policies that restrict marijuana or gambling or alcohol or tobacco... Um, and maybe even to some extent guns. We think of those as paternalistic policies. They're policies where the government's trying to change your private behavior, change what consenting adults are, are allowed to do. And so that, um, you know, that's, I think that's a kind of distinctive rationale, if you will, for government intervention that we wanted to highlight. And some states are a lot better on that, you know, and, and some states are worse. In particular, we find that if you look at our bottom five on, on personal freedom, it tends to be kind of deep south states, a lot of them. Um, and then, you know, if you look at the top states on personal freedom, it's a lot of Rocky Mountains and New England. Um, and maybe there are different cultures in terms of paternalism in these different parts of the country. Right. Well, let me take on your question in one, you know, kind of very specific case instance. I mean, think about educational freedom. When the government tells you that you aren't going to have choice about where you send your kid to school, they're engaging in a form of paternalism. When they tell you that you have to have lots of requirements for your homeschooling approach, or or when they're telling people that their private schools um, have all these reporting requirements or curriculum requirements or things like that, they're engaging in a paternalistic way. They're saying that they know better what education needs to be than, than parents or caregivers. Uh, and I think that the, the way a, a classical liberal, libertarian, even a conservative might think is that, no, uh, the people who care most about uh, their children are the people who are their parents or their caregivers or relatives. Um, and, uh, and also that there's a kind of humility about what, what they know is best for any particular child, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some children will flourish under different types of options than others. I mean, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a Montessori school teacher, and you know she thinks that that approach to education is the best way. I don't. I, I might have a different view, um, but it also might be depending on your child and their particular circumstances. And is a government bureaucrat going to know that? Should we basically have like z- you know zip code assignment? 
mean, I find it absurd. Like, who, who, would, who would ever imagine that if we didn't have grocery stores, we said, hey, let, let's have grocery stores, but you can only go to the one that's in your zip code or your neighborhood. That's insane, right? We have much better grocery stores in this country than lots of places because, uh, you know, again, like back to the Cold War, a lot of people who came to the United States from the Soviet Union were marveling at our grocery stores, right? Why? Because the free market provides, um, I don't think that the, our educational system has been as good as our grocery stores, in part because they've been more fettered by government paternalism. They think they know better, but in fact, it makes the situation worse. You two are definitely in the right building. <laughs> I, I, I will say that. I think this is a perfect time to segue into COVID and how that affects freedom state by state. Take it away. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a whole section of the of the book on this. Now, uh, of course, all the state-level restrictions that we had under COVID, whether it's lockdown, stay-at-home orders, um, business requirements, masking requirements, those have all gone away now. Um, so in our index, uh, they, don't, they don't feed into our index. But it's interesting to look at uh, how states did differ in their approaches during the pandemic and how that relates to freedom. And in general, uh, the states that uh, are score higher on our freedom index also had less of a, of a lockdown approach to the pandemic. And, um, you know, we could, I think there's a room for uh, disagreement among people who advocate strong individual liberty about exactly what the right policies are during a pandemic. Um, I think in retrospect, you know, this COVID wasn't like the Black Death or something. It wasn't something that was incredibly contagious and extremely fatal. And therefore, you know, we need extreme measures to kind of protect people. Um, and, and so I, I think a lot of people have come to the view that, you know, in retrospect, maybe some of the policies that we undertook were, were too aggressive and caused too much economic disruption. And there have been some, some consequences from that that we're still living with. Obviously, a huge gusher of federal money. Um, some of it went to state governments. Uh, a lot of that, that money generally got spent. It did not um, end up reducing taxes. We've seen state tax burdens actually go up during the pandemic. Um, and we've ended up with a, a much larger federal debt as a result. So, so those are some of the economic consequences that we're still going to live with as a result of the pandemic. Okay. I believe there was a state that did nothing. South but Dakota. South Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> Although North Dakota ranks highest on the Miozzi and uh, Powell Index. So there was a, uh, a Ben Powell from Texas Tech, yes. uh, you know, looked at this. And, uh, and uh, it's very interesting to see the variation. So a state like New Mexico is actually the worst on their index. And North and South Dakota were at the top. Okay. Um, but you two are convinced you have the best index, right? The most well, comprehensive index. Well, again, like, this is an index of COVID This policies. is an index of COVID policies okay, in particular. Okay, got it. Um, and again, since a lot of these have gone away, you know, it, 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 you know between editions, if you will, yeah. uh, you know, these don't factor in. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that in the book we, we publish these, uh, or reprint these, because it is important for people to have a sense of here's what happened in that time period, even though fortunately we've moved beyond that. It was important to, I think, show that. Um, because, again, if those had continued in the same extent, it would have really disrupted, I think, the findings. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Um, looking at this online and newspapers and things like that, there are several articles singing the praises of New Hampshire, right, for being number one. Mm -hmm. There are five times more talking about how New York is last. <laughs> um, I want to talk about both these states, what they're doing right, New Hampshire, and what they're doing wrong. New York. So what's New Hampshire doing right here? Well, since Jason actually lives there because he moved right. to freedom, <laughs> uh, he was in New York number 50 and then moved to freedom. Uh, and again, we're calling balls and strikes. And so part of our findings is one of the reasons he moved, right? Because he, he moved to a place that, that is more free. Uh, why don't you tell the good side and I'll tell the, the kind of the, the negative ugly. side, <laughs> <laughs> the part I'm still working on. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so New Hampshire is a very low tax burden. Um, other than Alaska, it's the only state that does not have a statewide income or sales tax. Um, its last vestige of, of an income tax, which is an interest and dividends tax, is scheduled to go away in 2025. Um, so very low tax burden, very small government in general. And what government does exist is very localized. 
So two-thirds of your tax burden is actually local rather than state, and it's your property tax, and, and New Hampshire does have relatively high property taxes, although those have even come down a little bit in recent years. Um, but it is local, so you have more choice of public services and tax burden. You know, some towns have lavish public services and high tax burden. Some have low um, public services and small tax burden. And so we do give states a little bit of credit for that if you have lots of choice of local government and your tax burden is mostly at the local level. That gives you a slight advantage on, on fiscal policy. Um, and then on, uh, on, on regulatory policy, um, you know, New Hampshire does pretty well on things like occupational licensing, so they don't put a lot of barriers in front of um, you know, new practitioners in the field. They give nurse practitioners a large scope of practice to practice independently of physician oversight. Um, they do well on things like asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture they've reformed, which is the, the procedure by which law enforcement can seize your property and then auction it off without uh, accusing or convicting you of a crime. Uh, New Hampshire's amended that. They haven't gone quite to the extent of some states and abolished it altogether, but, um, but they've, they've gone quite far in reforming it. Um, they have a lot of, lot of these personal freedoms like gun rights, school choice. Um, they have medical marijuana, marijuana decriminalization. Um, so they, they just generally have had a, uh, a balanced approach, actually. And I think that's why they end up number one is a small advantage on economic freedom. They do happen to be number one on economic freedom alone. Um, but then you add to that being near the top on personal freedom, and it just gives them a big advantage on overall freedom. And it's very different than, say, a state like Texas, which is number 17 overall, but a big part of that is because they're number 50 on personal freedom. And that's why I think that this is a much more fair assessment of, of actual freedom in the 50 states than a mere economic freedom index. And again, we love the people who do those too. Yeah. Uh, more discussion of freedom and, and data, the, the better. Um, but I think you would get a skewed view of actual freedom if you just look at the economic side. Excellent. What about the bad things in New Hampshire? Oh, the bad things. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to do the bad things, and I would talk about New York, which is basically all bad for the most part. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of people like the state liquor stores because it's relatively cheap, but that is an infringement, I think, on uh, economic freedom uh, and personal freedom. Uh, tobacco taxes are particularly high. Um, I mean, they're better than uh, Vermont's, uh, but that's not saying much in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, they also have state-mandated direct access to, uh, uh, to specialists. Uh, and so that is kind of an anti-HMO approach, right? It restricts uh, the ability of uh, insurance companies to offer a variety of different types of options. Uh, one of the big things, so we, we did an event uh, in New Hampshire with Governor Sununu uh, when we launched the book. And uh, we were asked, like, what can New Hampshire do, even though it's really good, what can it do to, to improve even on its absolutely great score? And, and the governor and Jason at the same time said, right to work. Uh, so, it, so it doesn't have a right to work uh, law, uh, which is important in the presence of the Wagner Act regulations at the federal level. Um, and then one of the things that actually Jason does a lot of work at AIR on is uh, its housing policies, uh, exclusionary zoning, for example. Uh, and then it has a high rel uh, renewable portfolio standards, um, and so there, you know, there's a that makes electricity costs go up for regular New Hampshireites, uh, and that's a problem. Um, but again, there are limited things that New Hampshire can do, um, given how high it is. But it still has room for growth, um, and that's an important thing. There is no perfect state in America. The other thing is that there is no state in America that is so bad that it's the equivalent of regimes like. Burma or Zimbabwe or um, Argentina until maybe recently. No, I mean, they haven't done much yet. But, uh, you know, there are no states like that. There are no Russia or Ukraines, right? These are places where even citizens, when they come to America and they come to New York, it's still better than uh, the places they're coming from. It's just that New York doesn't do very well relative to the other states. In fact, it does a lot worse relative to the other states, although Hawaii is catching it. So maybe that's a segue to talk about New York. Let's talk about New York. <laughs> Lots of bad stuff. Uh, and, and maybe Jason could kind of go, I go back and forth because we could say 50 things. Um, I mean, one of the biggest things is the tax burden. New York suffers from so much crushing taxation. So the state taxation burden is high. The local tax burden is high in most places. Uh, you know, overall... 
the tax burden combined state and local is twice as high in New York as it is in New Hampshire and I believe Florida as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a huge difference, right? I mean, think about how much money is out of your pocket to do whatever you want, whether it's gamble or buy raw milk or whether it's to put your kids in private school or, or simply to, you know, uh, you know uh, light a fire with it. Like the fact is, is it's restricting your ability uh, to live your life project when so much of the fruits of your labor are captured by government. And we see that in New York. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's not as if New York's, uh, you know, services are, are uh, better than Florida's or New Hampshire in, in area after area. Uh, and part of it is they, they pay their bureaucrats so much. And uh, part of the problem in New York is the ability of special interests to capture government, um, including unions. Uh, it has, it has, um, hasn't reformed eminent domain. It has uh, rent control, which is something that like 90% plus of economists think is dumb. Even left-wing economists understand that rent control is a dumb thing. Uh, if you think about, I mean, the ta tobacco taxes are basically, you know, prohibitive. I mean, like they're so high. Uh, that it stimulates black markets in these things, which is also not good. Um, uh, what else, Jason? There's so many things. Uh, right, no right to work law, obviously. Yeah, I mean, high minimum wage. You know, yeah. go go down the list. Um, yeah, it's it's got a lot of regulations. You know, recently they've they have done some things on personal freedom. They legalized marijuana, although they haven't gotten that quite right because they had all these this sort of politically correct red tape about who's allowed to have a license. Right. Uh, and so as a result, you ended up with a lot of black market um, marijuana suppliers, and now they're going to have to crack down on that. And they haven't regulated public consumption either, so that's caused kind of a backlash to marijuana legalization there. So we'll have to see what happens there. But um, they've taken some steps there. They uh, tried to tackle exclusionary zoning a little bit. The governor, the current governor did, with a, a housing bill but unfortunately, it went down in flames. So that's another another problem that that they have is uh, a lot of um, strict zoning laws, especially in Long Island and, and New York City itself, that drive up the cost of living. Um, I mean, what have what else have they done that's good? I'm trying I mean, to think. I mean, courts force <laughs> courts force them to allow right. concealed carry of handguns. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have gone uh, this direction. I mean, this is a bigger question: is just do, does federal restrictions on states uh, powers in certain areas increase or decrease liberty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in some cases, like with gun rights, federal dis court decisions have expanded individual freedom in these states when states have been coercive, right, when paternalistic. Um, look, I mean, if you think about uh, Jim Crow, obviously uh, federal powers uh, were helpful in eradicating Jim Crow. Uh, but a lot of times, federal uh, decisions, either court decisions or federal legislation, restricts freedom. Like in the case of, uh, you know, Obamacare, right? Health insurance issues, where you know there was more of a policy differentiation across the different states before uh, the PPACA or Obamacare, and uh, that that uh, limited freedom and, and limited, I think, uh, innovation in those areas. Uh, the same thing with. Um, uh, in terms of um, uh, if you think about how some states actually uh, take away local control, um, that can sometimes be an issue, although that's even a more fraught one, right? So, for example, in Texas, should given the tax, high local tax burden that they face, to what extent should the state try to preempt localities' independence on some areas? Um, and you see that with guns, too. Like, so states oftentimes preempt localities from imposing gun uh, restrictions. Uh, and then you, so that's where you can kind of get into the, uh, and I'm going to say this since I'm at the Cato Institute, right? Do we want a utopia of utopias a la Robert Nozick in which smaller communities should be allowed to have more restrictive policies and states and the federal government should allow them to do that? Or should the federal government and states uh, have some kind of like minimal level that they impose on localities uh, so they, ha they can restrict what states do. And, of course, the Bill of Rights is obviously something that protects against state intervention. And then when those were nationalized by the Supreme Court, uh, that restricted states from doing certain things. Um, and so it's a, I think that's a more robust debate about at what level of government should decisions be made. I think ideally they allow more and more freedom and also I think decentralization 
uh, as long as like a basic level of rights are respected is probably a good thing too. Um, and so, for example, um, some state preemption or federal preemption we should be very concerned about. Okay. I do have a question about government spending. You talk about that throughout the book. That includes employment, correct? Um, paying employees. Mm -hmm. Intuitively, that sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. Why isn't it? Yeah, so public employment is a negative on our fiscal policy measure because the fact that public employment can crowd out private employment. And so, um, you know, we look at, for instance, um, states that have publicly owned hospitals or utilities. That drives up their public employment figures. And so there, you're not having as much of a kind of private marketplace because you've, you've got government ownership of enterprises, really, um, that, you know, from our conception of freedom, should be private enterprises, right? And so we, to, to weight that, we look at the literature on what, does, what happens to uh, private employment when you have an exogenous and outside uh, increase in public employment, and the literature does find a negative effect of increases in public employment on private employment. And so for us, that, is a, that ends up being a diminution of freedom, given the background of you know, government is the one that has the taxation authority. And so the more that they kind of compete directly against private employers, they're really kind of putting their thumb on the scale and limiting the freedom of the market. But one thing on this is that, you know, no offense to the anarchists out there in the crowd, um, but um, you know we're not anarchists, so the optimal level of government employment would not be zero for us. But we're not even close to that, and so we're not talking about we're talking about variation among the states, uh, and even the states with the lowest level of government employment and government consumption are doing lots of things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and so there's a lot of room before you reach that barrier where we're really cutting into the basic core functions of government. So, for example, like, I'm against defunding the police. I think it's a lunatic idea. Uh, it's not good for public safety, even though I'm someone who believes in criminal justice reform in terms of qualified immunity, which is a big thing the Cato Institute believes in, or, um, you know, excessive sentencing reform, police militarization of policing. But we wouldn't want public employment in police to go to zero in our worldview, now, I know there are people who are anarcho-capitalists who would like to privatize all this. I, I think that's naive and a fantasy uh, because we're never going to get there, uh, even if it were optimal. But I don't even think it would be optimal. All right. Try to stimulate maybe some questions online. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the segue. I was about to go into questions online and in person, actually. So what I want to do here is ask one from the audience, one from um, the website or rather Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, and, and do it that way, um, if you don't mind. So I saw a hand. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, one There's should be one coming. coming up, yeah. And are we doing the Jeopardy rule? It has to be a question? Uh. <laughs> well, I, it is a game show. <laughs> Thank you. I think your indices are very important and significant. I'm wondering, though, if you have some comparative data on, on the one hand, the indices you've used for freedom, on the other hand, some results in the public area that I think were in favor, such as lo longer life, health standards, uh, uh, educational attainments of people, things that are usually attributable to public health expenditures. And I'm wondering if, if there's one way you can Look at the scale. On the one hand, your 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 freedom indices. On the other hand, underhand uh, indices of of health and other types of public well-being. I think I think that's a great research question. I think um, you, you should uh, that scholars should use the index in that way. Um, you know, we've looked at migration and growth. Uh, we, so we haven't ourselves looked at some of those health indicators, but that's certainly a way you could use it. Um, we at one point um, saw that some sociologists had used our personal freedom measure to look at um, the correlation between personal freedom and rates of accidental death. And uh, they found that having more personal freedom correlates with more accidental death. <laughs> and uh, Okay, uh, fair enough. Um, 
we're open to the notion that freedom has side effects, both positive and negative. Yeah. Um, and maybe this even is a, a kind of validation of the index, right? Um, and if people do have more personal freedom, maybe they're free to have more accidents. <laughs> yeah, again, but, like, there's two sides of us. On yeah. one side of us, we're classical liberals who love freedom, and that's why we want to figure out who's most free and who's less free. And we would like to see reforms that move towards a freer world in these states. Um, but we're also social scientists, and we care about just prevent, presenting good empirical data that people can use as they see fit. And there's a footnote in here. I can't remember what page it's on, uh, but there's a footnote in here that lists in very small print a long list of studies that have utilized the index to answer questions you know, like that. Uh, and so we encourage people to do that. Uh, and it's very uh, flattering when they do because it suggests that regardless of their philosophical or ideological commitments, they think that the data is, u is useful. Okay. Um, someone online now wants to know, do you know where DC ranks? <laughs> it <Yeah>. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Unfortunately, we, we can't include DC in the index because it's not quite comparable to the states in terms of its powers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Congress does have ultimate control over DC. Um, and so making that comparison, we thought, wouldn't be quite fair. Um, I mean, you yourself could kind of look at through some of these these policies and compare where DC uh, would would be. Um, you know, for instance, where would it stand on on tax burden? Think about what you pay in, in property and sales and income taxes here in DC, and think about okay, well, the average state, if you combine state and, and local taxes, is around 11% of your income that you're paying. Um, so, are you paying more or less than that? That kind of gives you a sense of of where DC would be on that. Yeah, and then there's a, a natural follow-up to that is, well, what about Puerto Rico? Yeah. Um, also not a state, uh, and so it, harder to compare. But we actually had a co couple of scholars down in Puerto Rico who, who expressed some interest in us trying mm -hmm. to you know, look at Puerto Rico, not as an exact comparison where we would put it in the rankings, but where we could try to measure where Puerto Rico stands. Um, and you know, there are people who think that Puerto Rico and D.C. should become states if they ever did which I don't think is imminent. Yeah. Sorry, DC. Uh, but uh, you know, then we'd obviously want to add that. And so it might be fun to look at DC and Puerto Rico in the next edition just to see, if, like, even if it's a standalone appendix and say, hey, where do things look like in these two places? There are several questions about US territories. So okay. yeah, yeah. you guys appreciate you may want to look into that. Yeah, again, like you could look at Guam, you know, other places. Um, you know, it, it, again, like, um, it's hard to imagine anytime soon, given the politics of this. I mean, mm -hmm. the, if we didn't have a Senate the way we do, which I'm glad we do, actually, I think it's a good system, yeah. uh, then you could imagine it would be easier to take in states like that. Uh, but given the politics, you know, unlikely anytime soon. Okay. Audience? Uh, yes. Sir in the back. Hi, thank you. Good results. Um, I live in Texas, so you have some real interesting results for Texas. Uh, number five in fiscal freedom, but number 50 in personal freedom. So I wonder if Governor Greg Abbott calls you this afternoon and asks for your advice on what to do, are there things that the state should be working on to improve the level of personal freedom? Or maybe one suggestion is to do nothing. Would it be better just to leave everything alone and don't try to change anything? If they improve their personal freedom, is that going to decrease fiscal freedom or other kinds of freedoms? Well, they've been working on educational, uh, expanding educational choice in Texas, and that, that would help. Um, and I haven't looked recently, but I, weren't they just in a special session on this? Yeah, uh, it, it yeah, failed. It failed. Uh, but, um, you know, that, was, that would improve it. They did improve on gun rights. I, we used to joke in earlier editions, especially I used to live in Texas, uh, in uh, Comal County, Wimberley area. And um, I used to joke with my Navy buddies uh, uh, down in San Antonio that, uh, you know, Vermont had better gun laws than, than Texas did. Uh, but Texas has improved on that. Uh, the biggest issue is that their um, crime-adjusted incarceration rates are very, really high. Uh, and you could say, ah, that's, you know, libertarian uh, ideology. Um, you know, if you care about public safety, you know, you have to put people in jail. Some people deserve to go to jail. I think that's true. But look, Governor Rick Perry, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, lots of conservatives in what is called the right on crime effort 
were in favor of changing Texas laws because they realized that, yeah, they had an incarceration problem. Um, and that drives a lot of Texas's problems on personal freedom, despite the fact that they have improved because of things like right on crime and Governor Rick Perry and others. Um, but it hasn't it hasn't improved uh, nearly enough. Uh, but if if these reforms do have an impact, you know, particularly when it comes to like things like uh, 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 victimless crime arrest rates, which we measure as well, uh, then maybe you will see Texas improve because they do have other things that they do well on, uh, particularly if they could handle education freedom. I find it absolutely absurd that a place that cares so much about freedom uh, would not have uh, a better educational system. I understand the politics of Texas uh, for why this happens, but it shows you that the commitment to freedom that Texas usually talks about is some measure true and some measure uh, hype. And I hate to say that about the great Lone Star State. It's a great place, but uh, it needs to do better if it wants to continue to talk about freedom. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is one thing to, to punish violent criminals, which we all support, and uh, and, and you know, there's even a case for increasing spending on, on policing to accomplish that. But Texas is one of a handful of states where you can get life in prison for a single marijuana offense not involving kids. Like, so if you're just caught with enough marijuana, you could go, theoretically, I don't know how many people have, but you could go to prison for life. It's just like one indication of, of the way their criminal justice system is set up um, to be excessively punitive on some of these issues. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the answer for Texas would be a little bit less paternalism and more leaning into freedom. That's my challenge to my friends out there from Texas. I have a question from social media. Is there any advancement in challenging the constitutionality of qualified immunity? What steps are needed to bring about their reversal? The laws. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I think uh, Connecticut is one state that has improved uh, on that margin and helped them on personal freedom. Yeah. Connecticut, maybe surprisingly, was our most improved state over the last two years. Uh, It had to do mostly with uh, legalizing marijuana and and, uh, abolishing qualified immunity. So... um, you know that's uh, that's a state that's done it. New Mexico has done it. And I believe Colorado has done it as well. I don't know if all of those have completely gotten rid of it, but they've certainly reformed it substantially. Uh, so this is a this is a policy in our index. Um, it surprisingly does not have a very large weight because it turns out we we relied on some of the the research on how often qualified immunity is used as a defense at trial and. It's a handful of cases a year nationwide. So, yes, it may offend our sense of justice, and this does, in fact, I think, get our constitutional weight. Um, it doesn't affect that many people. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's in there. It's not a huge part of the index, but it, it is something that could appreciably increase a state's score given that so few states have taken this reform. And again, on a lot of variables, I mean, we only measure things, policy areas, where the states actually have a differ, or at least one state, right? Mm. So like with, um, with prostitution, there's only one state. There used to be one and a half states, right? It used to be Rhode Island. Rhode Island. And was it only in the Providence, maybe? But or, or was it it was, uh, it, you could not have brothels. You could, be, you could have it in your own. Right. Residents, basically. Anyway, the point of that is to, not to encourage uh, prostitution, but uh, is uh, is to say that uh, if you don't have any variation, like all doctors are licensed across the country, so we don't measure that as a restriction on freedom, although of course it is, because we're trying to basically understand the relative changes. And we would encourage states uh, you know, to add new variables to our study by trying to expand freedom in e- even areas where no state is currently on the, on the freedom uh, you know, boundary. Okay. Any questions from the... Yes. Uh, 
Thank you so much. Um, so I noticed that your personal freedoms scale is rather very distinctive than uh, the one that, let's say, is used under the scope of human rights law and used by the human, human rights organizations in general. So these organizations, when they do an index over the governments, let's say, they would definitely analyze something like women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and I wonder why these clusters are off your scale. Is there a reason for that? And whether you base your analysis over the statistics of human rights organizations. Thank you. I think it goes back to variation across the states. So we do have um, same-sex civil unions and marriage in there, but of course that is now nationwide. Sodomy laws are in there, that's now nationwide. Uh, we do have um, whether a state has in its state constitution an equal rights amendment, so guaranteeing that uh, government may not discriminate on the basis of sex. Um, so that's in there, and that there is some variation across the states there. Um, I think just in the U.S., uh, you don't see quite the variation that you have internationally on some of these issues, but we're definitely open to including anything that's, you know, relevant to, to freedom in those areas. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, is that um, when it comes to, say, uh, abortion, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing within classical liberal or libertarian philosophy that has a theory of when life begins. It's, it's uh, exogenous to the kind of political philosophy. And therefore, uh, you can be a, uh, a libertarian, a, a good libertarian, depending on your view of when life begins, uh, depending on the kind of type of abortion policy regime they have. So if you, if you believe life begins at birth or, or you know, anywhere between then and, and birth, uh, or, or at conception or any between, anywhere between conception and birth, um, that's going to depend, that's going to affect whether you, whether the state is rightly or wrongly restricting abortion. Um, so we don't include it in the main index because we don't want to take a view, uh, we don't want to take a view on when life begins in the index and it will make it less useful to a lot of people. Uh, but we do think it's important to show what it would look like, what our index would look like if you included abortion. Uh, and we, so we have not, not just one, not just two, but three freedom indices in our appendix that, have, uh, that relate to three different abortion policy regimes. So we have one that's kind of extreme pro-choice, one that is, is moderate pro-choice, and one that is pro-life. And then we uh, essentially provide that, that data and, and rank them. And so if you want to look in the appendix, depending on whether you're pro-life or anywhere else uh, on the spectrum, uh, you'll be able to find where your state would rank. Um, and I think that abortion policy is obviously an area with the Dobbs case that is going to mean more state variation naturally because they, they weren't allowed to have as many. I mean, not, not there was zero state variation, but not as many. Now there's a much wider scope for state variation there. And again, the how well you like the different abortion indices is going to depend on when you think life begins or, or when uh, personhood begins or any number of other ways you might measure when it's okay. But I don't believe that very many libertarians would say uh, that the state would have no role in uh, protecting life uh, at some point. Um, now, you know, there are lots of you know, weird uh, conversations that happen over, you know, at uh, various libertarian things about should you be able to allow, allow to own nuclear weapons uh, in your basement? Uh, I tend not to enjoy those conversations. Uh, uh, but there are people who say, you know, like, look, you should be allowed to, you know, kill your kid up until like five years old or something. I, <laughs> like, that's silly, I think, my own sense. Um, uh, you know, but uh, I think there is a robust conversation among libertarians about it, when does life begin sometime between conception and birth, uh, and how do you measure the state restrictions? Yeah. Okay, we have time, a little time, for one more question. Is there a way to use your list and the Heritage Foundation's or Freedom House's list of the freest countries and extrapolate if, say, New Hampshire were freer than Switzerland? <laughs> That, that is difficult. Um, it's, I, I won't say it's impossible, but you'd have to gather some of the, the data, at least on the sort of top countries out there, on all these other variables. So how would they score on, you know, education choice and 
uh, firearms and marijuana and right. uh, labor law and, and all that sort of thing. And it would be it would be quite an endeavor because those international indices don't include the same variables. But um, but yeah, I think uh, it, it would be. Uh, a, a worthwhile effort, and, and I, th- I do think the variation among the states is enough that it would probably um, change, um, you know, some of the rankings in terms of where where the U.S. sits, right? Um, really, where where you are um, inter- in the, on that international scale may depend on where you are uh, in, in the U.S., which state you live in. Yeah, and, and one thing I would add is is this is a major difficult challenge to measure freedom across the 50 states, just in terms of, I mean, 230 variables times 50 states times, you know, two years every cycle we do the addition. That's a lot of, and there are also sub-variables, right? That's a lot of data collection. And and especially when you're going to statutes to code the data, uh, you have to have, if you tried to do this internationally, it would be probably like as big a research project as I can imagine, and I'm not sure anybody could do it. I mean, that's why the international indices, which I like, and and I respect the scholars who do them, uh, their data is a lot less granular than ours. I mean, if you were trying to, for example, uh, even just learn whether raw milk sales are are legal in the, what, 180 countries in in the world, uh, that would be very hard given language skills. Uh, or and then like think about education policy or like things like um, alcohol policy, for example, in the United States might be more complicated than in a lot of places in the world. But that's a really hard one because you have to read statutes and understand like, well, what part of a restaurant can they serve alcohol or not? And, you, you know, you have to do that. It takes us a absolute ton of time to do this coding. Uh, and uh, thank you for the patience of Eleanor O'Connor uh, for uh, help for, for understanding how difficult that is, um, you know, because it's, it's a real challenge. And so doing that multiplied by 180 states, and then you add, like, in Switzerland, we have the Canton system, you know, and having to do that. I mean, it'd be cool to have a Switzerland Freedom Index, um, you know, and maybe if you got enough researchers doing their particular states, then you could kind of aggregate, but... I think the, the, one of the reasons why there isn't such a thing in terms of a really granular, in-depth uh, international freedom index that could be as comparable to the freedom index for the U.S. is because of that real, uh, all the burdens of research. Do you agree? Yeah. No, it's, it's daunting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of joke about this ever since the first edition hit is that when we started doing this index all the way back, we think in 2007 is when we started. Uh, we joke that, especially when it's when we're getting towards the end and it's just been like a lot of hard work, we, we joke like, if we knew how much work this was going to take, would we ever started? Which is kind of like everybody's dissertation, in, uh, you know, too, <laughs> right? Like, would you ever start that thing? We're glad we did it, but man, it, uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine because you think about it now. We have data all the way back to 2000 for every variable, and we have so that's 22 years times 50 states times 230 variables. That's a lot of data. My head hurts just listening to that. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't try to do it all in one bite. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could join us today. Can we have a round of applause, please, for our authors? Please pick up this book. As you can see, it's very interesting. Um, thank you for attending. Please come back.